Good morning. The scripture reading for today is found in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, excuse me, verse 8 through 24. If you'd like to follow along, it's printed in your bulletins. Then the king of Saddam and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amarephel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Alasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre at the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went to pursue as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten, and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. To Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them have their share. Jessica, you did a good job with all those crazy names. (laughs) Praise God. Keterleomer, not normally a name you hear every day. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage. Even these hard-to-pronounce names remind us that we're dealing with an ancient text from a different place in a different time, so we're going to need your help to understand it. But we know that the biggest barrier isn't the time and the cultural situation of this passage But it's our hearts, our resistance to you, and our spiritual understanding, or lack thereof. So we pray for grace by your Spirit, that we would hear the good news of the gospel, 
and that our lives would be changed by what you have here for us. Help us to see and understand and believe. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know the last action movie you might have seen. Maybe it was uh, something more recent or maybe a rerun that you saw on TV. Jason Bourne, an old Schwarzenegger flick, or perhaps Snow White and the Huntsman. Is that an action flick? Does that count? Maybe it does. What we have in today's passage rivals all the greatest adventure stories that you can possibly imagine up. And you thought Abraham was just a nomadic shepherd. No, here he is, the action hero. In the days of Abraham, we're told, in this region, there were four powerful overlords from the east who had put in subjugation five different Canaanite cities in the Dead Sea region. Well, after 12 years of suppression, those five cities decided enough is enough, and they revolted, no longer wanted to be under the thumb of those overlords, no longer wanted to pay tribute and taxes to them, and so they revolt. And so then there's a counter-suppression, a military campaign to put down this rebellion, regain control over the Dead Sea region, and here comes the story. In the midst of this conflict, caught in the crossfire, is Abraham's nephew, Lot, whom we've already been introduced to and we've heard a few stories of. Lot, who's now living in Sodom and who was captured and carried off, and here comes Abram. Gets news of Lot's capture, gathers together a militia, we're told of 318 trained men who are probably his workers, his indentured servants, different people on his team. They plan a night raid. They come in the dark, they fight for several weeks, traversing the whole region, chasing after bad guys, and then they're successful. He rescues Lot, his family, and all of his possessions. And what we get from this story, and we'll look at these few very brief principles and then move on from this story is just how faith in God's promises changes a person. You see, if you've been following with us along the way, this story of Abram, you might have thought he was a little bit more like Clark Kent than the Superman that we see glimpses of in this passage. A fearful man, a man that struggles to believe the promises of God, a man like me, a man like you, a person like you. How does faith begin to change us? three things this passage points out to us. First of all, faith makes us bold. Faith makes us bold and courageous in our service to other people. Abram launches what really is a quite significant military campaign. He goes out and he actually fights. I know the way I introduced this passage, I made it seem a little bit more like a fantasy. This was a real person going out there with real swords, with real risk, a real chance to die to rescue nephew 
Lot. He goes out, he confronts some of the most powerful political and military persons in that whole region. The lead king in the enemy alliance was the king of Shinar, which is also known as Babylon. Bold to rescue his captive nephew. Keep in mind, friends, we are not talking about natural boldness. So we're not just talking about your or my or Abram's natural personality, the way we typically attribute boldness in people's lives. People that are just naturally loud or maybe seemingly naturally self-confident. No, it's not a personality thing. Neither is it a competency thing. You know, you and I naturally were bold, typically in areas where we feel like we are most skilled, most able, most confident. Our self-confidence, therefore, tends to go up or down depending upon how well I can perform or how well I have performed in that given area. But move outside of that circle to my weaknesses, to areas where I don't feel like I have as much experience or where I have failed before, no boldness then, no boldness there. It is true that Abram clearly has some skills in this military stuff. Verse 15, we're told that during the night, see, he's strategic in his attack. Abram divided his men to attack them. He's a planner. He's able to manage his troops. In verse 14, we're told that he summoned the help of 318 trained men. They apparently knew the art of war in this time. But look, this passage is very clear that Abram is being aided by the supernatural help of God. We've already seen it. Abram is a fearful man. You want to talk personality? You want to talk natural wiring? He's normally quaking in his boots. We looked at this two weeks ago, right? He and his wife and his family moved down to Egypt, and immediately Abram says, Look, I'm a dead man. They're going to come after me. They're going to kill me. Wife, you need to lie to them. Tell them that you're my sister, not my husband. Otherwise, they're going to kill me and take you and everything. Do this for me. Otherwise, I'm going to get killed. And before you know it, what happens, she does lie for him. And Sarah finds herself in Pharaoh's harem. Abram almost loses his wife because he's that afraid. It's not natural boldness we're coming, talking about. It's boldness that arises from a deep experience of God. You see, friends, I wonder if Abram still had it fresh in his mind and in his heart. Not long ago, I was captive. Not long ago, I was stuck in Egypt, and God went out and rescued me. Not long ago, God in His love was a warrior for me. He did not give up on me. God fought for me. If you believe that, that'll change you. That'll change you. Open your wide, 
your eyes wide open and your heart wide open to those around you who need your help. People that you can love with sacrificial and bold service, caring for others around you, even in the face of what you might call enemies. Threats of harm and risk and danger, or at least maybe just a certain area of fear, or maybe an area of incompetence where you don't feel quite as naturally confident about your area. What is it for you, friends? where you might be able to overcome fear in order to serve others, what can it be for you? Maybe it's the fear of neighborhood kids. And maybe the grace of God and the rescuing love of God in your life, the boldness of God that's grabbed a hold of you, gives you just enough, just enough resources to step out and say, I'll give it a try. I'll go try to connect and serve and love and do goofy things with these little ones, 5 to 12 years old. Not a lot of people would say, that's my sweet spot of relationship. Some of you would. Not a lot would. But maybe boldness from the grace of God can push you in that direction. Maybe it's fear that makes you reluctant to confront someone out of love. In this age of tolerance... It's so easy for us, and you hear it all the time, to become passive in relationships in the name of not being judgmental, quote-unquote. Well, I don't want to be judgmental, and I don't want to impose my opinions or my beliefs or values upon other people, and so I'm just not going to say anything. While you're watching your friend run their life over the proverbial cliff, where's the love in that? I'm not saying it's easy. It takes wisdom. It takes humility. It takes gentleness. It does take boldness, though, to step in, to talk to someone about something that's unhealthy or wrong in their lives. Maybe you become a bold advocate for someone in the neighborhood or in your life that's suffering injustice, a neighbor who's being manipulated by a landlord who doesn't know how to work through a legal code or maybe doesn't speak English as well as you can and doesn't know how to navigate the city's systems. You come in with fearless boldness to come and serve and enter into the battlefield of a broken world for someone else's sake. What might that look like for you? Faith in God's promise, a deep experience of the grace of God starts to make us bold. Secondly, faith makes you loyal. Secondly, faith makes you loyal. Loyalty is not a word that's a regular part of our relational vocabulary. I don't know the last Hallmark card you've seen with the language of loyalty on it. Right? It doesn't really warm your heart. It's not that fuzzy. It doesn't seem to really click in. We're comfortable talking about loyalty to country, and that's appropriate. We're comfortable talking about loyalty to our favorite sports team. And as we recognize cars that drive down our city streets with maroon and gold and flags coming out of the sides, and we can identify and say, that is a Redskins fan. That is a believer in RG3. He is their hope, right? True fan, loyal fan. I googled the word loyalty just for kicks, right? You just Google random words, don't you? 
Google your own name once in a while, don't you? Just, you know? And uh, loyalty, and I click the image section just to see what kind of images generally are pulled up with this language of loyalty. What does loyalty look like? What do you think was the main image that I drew up with that search? It was a dog. Dogs everywhere. Dogs here, loyal. Man's best friend. The epitome of loyalty, friends. You've got it. Is your furry friend or the ones you pat on the street as they walk by. We don't know what loyalty is. The Bible talks a lot about the loyalty of genuine love and friendship. Abram is not only bold, he is fiercely loyal to Lot. The passage highlights this in a number of subtle ways. In verse 12, when Lot is introduced as the one that was captive and taken off by these enemy kings, he's described literally not as nephew, but rather the son of Abraham's brother which is the narrator's way of evoking the story of how Lot ended up in Abram's life in the first place. Do you remember it? Lot's dad, Haran, brother of Abram, for some reason we find out in Genesis 11, tragically died prematurely. We don't know what the details of the circumstances are. And Abram says, you are my nephew, the son of my brother. I will take you in. And so for the rest of this story, we see Lot going everywhere Abram goes, doing everything Abram does. And even in the last chapter, we saw it last week, Abram generously giving Lot the choice of the best land, the land that was promised to Abram. Abram treating Lot like a son, like a loyal friend, like a partner. Verse 13 and 16 also, Lot is described not simply as his relative, but as his kinsman. We know Lot is Abram's nephew, and yet the narrator is going out of his way to describe Lot as Abram's kinsman. There's an obligation, a loyalty culturally, affectionately, personally from Abram over to Lot. Do you, friends, exhibit steadfast, dependable loyalty in your relationships? Is that a word that you use in your matrix of understanding what true friendship and true relationship ought to be? Do you know what? It's one of the strongest descriptors in the Bible of how God, the true friend, the true relationship that's being offered to you, how God relates to us. Do you see that in your life? I have a friend who I would describe as quietly loyal. I could show you on my phone if I were to pull out my text messages. Almost on a weekly basis, I get a text message from him, and he says, how can I pray for you? Bloop! How can I pray for you? We don't talk a whole lot. I'm the one that's generally not the good friend in terms of taking initiative. I have said it to him. I've said it to other people. If not for his continuous initiative, week after week and year after year, we would not be friends. Thank God for loyal friends. I'm not one of them. I'm learning from him. Are you learning to become 
one like him. Because we tend so much, don't we, friends, to be flaky in our relationships. A flakiness that arises out of a self-centeredness. Well, hey, you know, I don't want to give up too much. Or this is my time. Or this is my emotional space. I'm not going to sacrifice too much. I don't want things to get out of hand. Or, oh man, I'm so wiped out. I don't want to give him or her a call. Or I don't want to give myself sacrificially to another person. Or maybe it's a way in which we use people. We only really bond ourselves to people that we find useful. And so the minute they fall out of usefulness to us, then we discard them, move on to the next person, the next hangout buddy, the next colleague, the next neighbor. Someone that actually benefits us. And I think one of the reasons why loyalty is so hard is because it typically shows itself in very slow, mundane, day-to-day sorts of ways, like a little text message, like a little act of service, like turning to a roommate or a spouse and saying, is there something I can do for you? (laughs) Talk about radical words, right? Most of the times we're trying to dodge any obligation. Dodge responsibility, making sure that we're doing the bare minimum to turn to my wife and say, is there anything that I could please do to serve you, to love you? Loyalty, and especially loyalty that's not conditional in the way that we typically make it to be. Isn't it true how much you and I tend to make people earn our loyalty and our friendship? Do you remember the story of Abram? Last week we saw it. He gave Lot the choice of the best land. He said, look, our men are fighting with each other. You go and pick first whatever you want. And Lot, in all of his magnanimity, no, in his selfishness, grabbed the best land, the most fertile land, the one with the great ocean view, no, the great plains view, no ocean there, the great amenities, the great prospect of economic prosperity, business potential, and said, Uncle Abram, for all that you've done for me, go ahead and take that wilderness over there that's not going to bear much fruit. And here's Abram. Instead of saying that ungrateful little twerp, thinking only of himself. I'll show him. We'll let him sit there in captivity a little bit longer and we'll let the chips fall where they may. He had it coming his way. No. The minute Abram hears about the news, doesn't flinch, doesn't think twice, he's gone. He's gone. It's a gracious loyalty. It's an unconditional loyalty that's not looking to serve only the deserving, whether if it's amongst our neighbors or amongst your roommates or amongst your children or your spouse or those around you. It's a loyalty that has no strings attached to it. If you were to ask Abram, Abram, why so loyalty? Why so loyal in your love and your service to Lot? I wonder if he would have said, it's because God has been loyal to me. When I went down to Egypt, I cared more about protecting myself than protecting my wife and my marriage and protecting the promise of God, the possessions of God. No, I cared more about me, but God cared more about me. 
God came after me. God stuck with me. God didn't abandon me. God hasn't broken his promises to me. Even though he has no reason within me, at least, to keep them, he cannot, he will not break them. I'm learning loyalty from my heavenly Father. Are you? Are you? What does that look like? in our relationships, especially with those that are the hardest to be loyal to. That person in your life that you have written off as disloyal. That person in your life that you have written off as a betrayer. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm going here because I think we're invited to, but not because it's easy. That person in your life that maybe actually did wound you and for whom it would be very riskful for you to continue to engage... What might it look like for you, like Abram, to enter into maybe one-way loyalty? The kind that grabs a hold of a person that's running away or pushing away or disloyaling themselves away out of your grip. And you're saying, I'm not going to let you go. You're wise about it. Maybe there are boundaries. But you're saying, I will be relentless in my pursuit of you because God was with me. Thirdly, faith makes you not only bold in your service, not only loyal, unconditionally loyal, but thirdly, faith makes you gratefully dependent. Gratefully dependent. One of the central questions that this passage raises for us is this. When things go well, when you get the victory, big or small, who gets the credit. When things go well, when you experience victories in your life, in your mind, in your heart, publicly, privately, who gets the credit? The passage actually climaxes on this point. This interchange between Abram and these two kings that are set in contrast to each other. The king of Sodom and the king Melchizedek, who's said to be the king of Salem, later on known as Jerusalem. We see first in the king of Sodom that Abram rescues him and his people, and yet his first words to Abram on the street are abrupt and ungrateful. He immediately starts to bargain with Abram. Hey, you keep the stuff and I'll take the people. No word of gratitude, just bargaining. He makes a gift that Abram's given him into a transaction. Don't we do that with God all the time? And then he invites Abram, in essence... He invites Abram to take credit for the victory of his own, on his own. Why? We know this because, especially in these cultures, in combat situations, the victor always keeps the spoils of battle. You take credit for it, Abram. This was your victory, and Abram responds, no, you don't get the credit. You don't get to say ever, I made Abram rich. I don't get the credit. I don't ever get to say, I made Abram rich. God gets the credit. God gets the glory. And in his interaction with the king of Salem, Melchizedek, 
This king who also is sort of a priest, a mysterious sort of figure here who comes to Abram and explains to him, so to speak, what had been going on in Abram's victory. He said, blessed be God, most high, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Abram, God did this for you. You had the sword in your hand. You gathered your men, 318 of them all. You went out there and for weeks and weeks you fought against your enemies and you brought home your nephew, your kinsman Lot. But God did it. God delivered your enemies into your hand. And how does Abram respond? He gives a tenth of everything, we're told, to God's representative. In essence, Abram giving a symbolic offering to God through Melchizedek, saying, everything that I have belongs to you. It comes from you because this victory is yours. Remember the principle. The true victor always gets the spoils of the battle. God gets it. Because God is the, is the victor. Who gets the credit for your victories? When things go well in your life, can I say this? We talk a lot about trials and hardships, and those are immense testing grounds of the true object of your faith and trust in life. Sometimes, however, you can best tell where your true trust lies by how you handle the good times. When things do finally go well, when a new romantic relationship really is taking off, when you do finally find a job after months and months and months of searching, when you finally reach a place of financial stability after economic hard times, not just for people in general, but for you and your pocketbook, When you start to find healing taking shape in your heart after years of emotional woundedness. Or maybe when just life starts to click and you're saying to yourself, you know, I'm just, things are going well. In those moments, who gets the credit? Because it is so easy, isn't it, to say, blessed be me, most high. I got me a job. I defeated the enemies of a tough job market. Blessed be me. No, here is a Melchizedek moment for you to learn to say, blessed be God most high. God delivered me from my enemies and God delivered my enemies into my hands. Different ways in which, friends, we are invited to learn to see God with eyes of faith as the supplier of all our needs, the giver of all of our good gifts, the rescuer of us in times of trouble, the provider for our daily bread, and to take the time and the space in our lives to give credit where credit is due. Do you realize that one of the biggest things that God calls out the human race on what eventually is described as sin in parts of the Bible, at the heart of it, Romans 1 tells us, is ingratitude. To live your life as if you are your own God. Did you know how cancerous even that smallest bit of thanklessness in your life might actually be? It's a humbling thought. Who gets credit for your victories? 
Even for the small things, the food on the table, it's why Christians have this practice of pausing to pray before meals. It's not just a rote prayer. It's a way of saying, God, if you didn't put this on my lap, on my table, I'd be dead. You're the giver of life. Every little thing you put in front of me, this salad, this Twinkie, whatever you eat, to say, God, this comes from you. To tithe yourselves, your lives, giving a tenth, this offering that Abram gives as a symbolic offering. And not just financially, though that's worth considering too, but in other areas of life where you are symbolically acknowledging in practical ways every good thing, every victory in my life, God did it. God blessed me with it. He is the victor. He gets the credit. He gets the glory. Abram understood this, and in this fascinating way, he submitted himself to this king. Abram is the victor, the king of kings, so to speak. He just just ran around and defeated armies upon armies. He's the big gun here in this passage. And yet at the end, we see him kneeling, bowing, submitting himself before this Melchizedek figure. This figure that's towering over Abram. One that's even greater than Abram. And the passage points us forward to one who always looms in all of our battles as the greater king, the truer Melchizedek, one that the New Testament later looks upon this passage and says there is one who is the ultimate king and ultimate priest simultaneously. A go-between God and man. One who had no beginning and no end, who was eternal, who would give a perfect sacrifice for our sins Himself, and not just a tenth of all that he had, but all of himself and all that he was, and who offered not just food to eat, we see Abram taking a meal from Melchizedek, bread and wine, but rather, not symbolically, but truly giving his body bread and wine, his life his death. This is Jesus, the true Melchizedek, the one who was the king of Salem, crucified outside of Jerusalem. This one to whom Abraham looked, the true source of blessing, the true feeding for Abraham's soul, the true explanation of the one that truly deserves all glory. And when we know and experience this king, this savior, This one that looms large in all the battles of life. Then we finally truly are able to do and be all the things that we said we might be. Bold and loyal and gratitude filled before God. As you start to engage and get to know the one who was the truly bold servant who courageously faced not just threats, physical threats from enemy kings, but faced the horrors of hell himself. This Jesus who fights for you. This Jesus who came to rescue you from sin and darkness. And not because you deserved it, but because of his love. The one who's loyal to you, keeping his promises to you, even when you forfeit them, so that you can say, Jesus sticks with me through thick and thin. 
even when I'm not loyal to him because he can't be disloyal to himself and his own promises. He'll never forsake me. He'll never abandon me. Great is his faithfulness to me. This king, this God who serves himself up to you as food, strengthening you for the battle, Will you take him in? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time. Do you need strength to be all these things that you're called to be? We do. Every one of us does. And it comes from taking in the one who gives himself so freely to us, so freely in his love. Will you receive him? This is how faith changes us. Do you want to be changed? It can start today. Let's pray. God, we... Thank you for this word of grace, giving us a picture of how you might really work in our lives and make us the people you want us to be. We pray that you would feed our souls with this message, this word, this vision. Feed us with your son, Jesus. We need his spirit to be bold and courageous and loyal and full of service and care and gratitude and a God-glorifying disposition, all these things. We need him, so bring him near to us. We thank you that you already have in the cross. In Christ's name we pray, amen.